Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, and we have a guest who is all the way across the country. She's in the state of Washington, although she's from Albany County. Welcome, Jenya Shimkin. Did I say your Thank name you so the right? Much. Did I say your name the right yeah. way? You did. It's, oh, good. It's uh, like it's like Kenya with a G. Okay, I guess you get used to telling people that. What does it have a fascinating origin? That name, it's so unusual. It does. It's actually it's a it's a Russian name originally. So my uh, my great grandfather came over from Russia in the early twentieth century, and he lived in an apartment building in New York across the hall from his best friend Boris and Boris's wife Zhenya. And when my dad was a kid, he had these memories of going to visit his grandfather in it in the city, and Zhenya was always doting on the kids and making them treats. So it's actually, the in Russia, it is the nickname for both Yevgeny and Yevgenia. So you have a lot of Zhenyas running around in, in Eastern Europe. So my father named me after her. Oh, that's a lovely story. Thank you for sharing that. So what yeah. brought Jenya to my attention is something that our readers are very familiar with because <laughs> on the front page of our paper this week, we had a story about a law that's being proposed locally um, to ban a practice I had thought was completely archaic and gone, conversion therapy, but it led one of our reporters mm-hmm. to do some research and She came up with Jenya, who had developed what sounds to me like an absolutely wonderful project that I had never heard of before. It's called the Cue Card Project. And can you just tell us, first of all, what it is, and then how Mm -hmm. you came to develop it? Yeah, sure. So the Cue Card itself is a communication tool designed by and for LGBTQ youth to support them in communicating their health needs to any any variety of clinicians that they might encounter. So the idea is that it's about the size of a business card and it opens to three panels and you can write in your name, your pronouns, you can identify your gender identity or sexual orientation, you can write down questions, and then it has a little tear-off portion that on one side talks about some of the common health disparities that we see in LGBTQ youth, which are not inherent to LGBTQ youth. They are a reaction to the cultural homophobia and stigma that these young people have to encounter every day. But then the other side of that card has tips for clinicians for working with LGBTQ youth. And so the idea is that young people can find them out in the world, fill them out, and then bring them with them to healthcare appointments, whether it's with a physician, a nurse practitioner, a therapist, a massage therapist of some kind, and they can use it to start a conversation about their needs so that they can feel a little bit more empowered to talk through what they want and need without feeling like they're going to have to constantly be reminding someone, actually, that doesn't apply to me. Actually, that question isn't valid for me. Actually, I like to go by this name. And so the idea for the project, uh, I mean, I know a lot of LGBTQ people, and I don't know any that have never had a negative experience in healthcare. And those negative experiences range from, you know, microaggressions or somebody asking you an inappropriate question, all the way up through assault at the hands of healthcare clinicians and healthcare professionals. And that most of my friends who've experienced those things are transgender, though it's not exclusive to them. 
But we have research that says that an absurd number of especially transgender people experience assault at the hands of clinicians who are charged with their care. And so, you know, we have all of this high level research, especially, you know, from the federal government under the Obama administration. We had all of this great research coming out about the healthcare needs of the LGBTQ community. And some of that even went so far as to make recommendations for what clinicians could do. And I felt like none of that information was actually trickling all the way down to the clinicians in our communities. And even less so, it wasn't it wasn't trickling down to patients themselves. And particularly, it wasn't reaching LGBTQ youth who are so often marginalized and hidden, especially if they live in communities where it's not safe for them or live in families where it's not safe for them to come out. I just felt like so little of that information was actually reaching the people who needed it. And so we thought, what if we put the power in the hands of young people themselves instead of waiting for all of this to trickle down? What if we told young people, it is not only okay for you to talk about these things in healthcare environments, it's really important for you to talk about these things in healthcare environments. Because if you can, if you can form a trusting, open, communicative relationship with a healthcare, healthcare clinician when you're young, it sets a really important foundation for you to continue to live a healthy life over the decade because now you have an experience of what it's like to really feel cared for. And so to actually bring this to life, I, it started as my thesis work when I was a master's student in public health at the University of Washington here in Seattle. And I did focus groups. We did five focus groups in the Seattle area with LGBTQ youth. Some of them were in the center of Seattle. And then I also went further afield to um, a more rural conservative area outside of Seattle to make sure that I heard from young people who didn't live in the middle of a city like Seattle, which has a lot of resources. Um, and then I did about 25 interviews with adults that work with LGBTQ youth, whether they were teachers, librarians, social workers, physicians, nurses, activists, community organizers. And together we came up with sort of how should the card look, what should it say, um, and who should I target with distribution. So that all happened between 2012 and 2013. So that's sort of how it started. So you've got five years where this, you've literally, Mm -hmm. literally put in the hands of these youth the power to change their relationships with their healthcare providers. How how widespread has it been? How how has it worked? Has it made a difference? That's a great question. I would say that I get I get overwhelmingly positive feedback from both young people and adults because I think the by necessity the distribution has always been sort of twofold. So I've always distributed the cards to both young people and to adults who work with and support young people. So sometimes I get orders from doctors, nurses, therapists, teachers, librarians love them. And then I get orders from youth themselves. So the feedback from both groups has been overwhelmingly positive. And the feedback from the groups is a little bit different because the way that they use the card is a little bit different. And so um, in, so we did the first printing of cards in, I first started distribution right around this time in 2014, that was when we printed the first round of 35,000 cards. And since then, we've distributed about 160,000. And they're in, I think, 35 states and four countries right now. And Did- so the, the demand has certainly been high and far beyond anything that I ever anticipated, expected, planned for, any of that. Um, <laughs> so you, you really did see a need. Positive. 
You really hit a need that was there. I, um, is New it, York it, one it of the states? So. Is New York one of the oh, states? Absolutely. And absolutely, I d- yeah. happen to know if Albany County is one of the places. How how would that's some, a good question? How would someone <laughs> here, if they're listening, um, go about? You know, let's say we have a youth group director, or we have a doctor's office who sees the need for this. Would they? Contract, contact you directly through your website, or how, how, how does one go about procuring these? That's a great question. So the, I, there are some cue cards in Albany County because my father has a small stash of them in Delmar. But, uh, <laughs> and then I believe I've actually, I have filled an order for an organization in Albany. Um, but I have large, I've done large orders for the uh, New York City Department of Public Health and a couple of Planned Parenthood affiliates around the state. So mm-hmm. there are absolutely cards in New York State. There are also, I get a lot of orders from college campuses, and so there are a few colleges in New York that have them as well. Uh, but for anybody who wants to order them, if you, my website is QCard, like the letter Q, card project. Dot com And in the upper right, there's a button that says order, which takes you to my uh, Square store where you can we recently launched this new online ordering and payment platform where it's all pretty much streamlined. It makes it much easier for me to track the orders as they come in. Um, and so the you can depending on how many you want, it sets out the price and then you can make a payment and then they'll get to you in about a week. Uh, the way that I've set up the website with full recognition that there are folks who don't have the budget or don't have the resources to pay for them, mm-hmm. you can go to the website and you can either order cue cards for yourself or you can sponsor an order for for someone else. And so you could go in and say, um, I really want you to send 100 cue cards to this high school because I think that they would benefit from them, but they don't have the funds. Or you can say, I just want to donate 100 cue cards. You send them to whoever needs them. And so I occasionally get I get contacted by small nonprofits, families, schools who say, you know, we'd really love to be able to provide these to our youth, but we just don't have the funds to pay for them. And then I can I can send them out anyway. The goal is to never say no to somebody who wants to request them, because I recognize that often the youth who are hardest to reach are exactly the youth who wouldn't be able to get them any other way. And so to make sure that we're able to get them out to the folks who need them and to make sure that we never have to say no to an order, I've set up this system where, you know, maybe there are already a lot of cute cards in your community, but you really want to make sure that they're available to someone else. And so you can sponsor an order that way as well. Okay. And I wanted to talk too a little about the name. Q card. I get the pun. It sounds like Q C U E, and you're queuing in the healthcare provider to something they probably should know anyway. But the Q and your website, you're very forward about using the word. And I hate to say it because I was raised to think of it as not a good word. Queer. Tell me a little yeah. about the youth. Yeah. The use of that. Yeah, it is interesting. I think it is very much a. There's definitely a generational divide in the community. In certain, especially, and I feel like it's also a very geographic thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the thing that's unique about the LGBT community is that the LGBTQ community, we cut across all of these other social designations. And so we are everywhere and occupy every other kind of identity. Mm-hmm. And so there are absolutely places in the country where you don't hear anybody that uses the word queer. And then there are places where most people use the word queer. And sometimes those things, those divisions exist along racial lines or along class lines. 
along age lines, along um, like socioeconomic or class lines. And so I think there's a criticism, especially among folks from older generations and folks from lower socioeconomic classes and lower education levels who sort of feel like it's not appropriate to try to reclaim this word because it has a history of violence. And I think that that is 1000% valid. Mm -hmm. And I think that especially younger generations have come to really embrace this word for its flexibility and who feel like um, words that were more popular in previous generations feel a little bit limiting in a way. You know, I think one of the great things that's coming out of the LGBTQ community today and over the past 10 years is really a push to embrace gender and sexuality as spectrums and not as these static ideas that people sort of, you make a decision when you're 18 that you are this thing and then you can't stray from that thing. And so I think for a lot of us, um, I have a friend uh, from college who said something really beautiful about the word queer. And she said, I like that queer is cozy in its expansiveness, which I, <laughs> that, really res that really resonated with me in that um, I sort of found a home in this word and I recognize that other people don't like it and that is totally fair. And I've had some really interesting conversations with people who don't identify chosen that. I do for a couple of reasons. I think one of them is that idea of sort of an expansiveness. Mm -hmm. um, and I do also think, I think of queer for myself as a social and political identity as much as a sexual identity. And so for me, um, I feel like my identity as a queer person means that I feel connected to people who experience all different kinds of oppression and that my queerness is rooted in a resistance of a re resistance towards this sort of status quo and this sort of heterosexist structure. <laughs> and so yeah. I think for me, I see the ways that those same systems have inflicted violence on other kinds of people, and it encourages me to stand in solidarity with those other kinds of people. And to be clear, I think that there are generations that came before me who identified as gay or lesbian. Mm -hmm. A lot of that resonated with a lot of them as well. So I don't think that it's something that's necessarily unique to queerness, but I do think in my generation, that's where that word has sort of come to mean something special for me. And so I've totally embraced it for myself and fully recognize that there are a lot of people that I'm even folks that I'm close to who feel like that word is still very violent to them and who don't feel good about it. So I think the part of the beauty of this community is that we try to, you know, we should strive to be open to other people's experiences of these things. Mm -hmm. And so, and so that we can, you know, like stand on the shoulders of the gay men who their bodies in the streets to protest the treatment of AIDS patients in the eighties. Right. And like, they are, they paved the way for so much of the work that is happening today. And same with the trans women of color at Stonewall, right? So I don't have to share their experience to respect that history and to understand that because of the groundwork that they laid down for me, I am able to exist in this space and use these words and live the life that I live now in 2018 that they probably couldn't even imagine 40 years ago. Very eloquent. You have educated me. I, as you might tell, I have gray hairs so that I'm from that earlier generation. But what I hear is this is like a brave new world you're embracing where you've taken a word that meant one thing and really kind of changed its use and its meaning to be a kind of revolutionary and inclusive term at the same time. 
Yeah, I think it's very much a reclaiming. And I think part of that reclaiming means reckoning with the pain that the word has caused a lot of other people. I don't think that we can pretend that isn't there. I think we have to acknowledge it and we have to grapple with it. And I think it's okay to say, I know that this word has caused a lot of violence for other people and people are allowed to be uncomfortable with it. And it's okay to create space for this new language it's okay for that to evolve over time yeah so um there's so many things you've touched on in your answers that you know i've hardly had to ask any questions and i just want to go back and look at some of them um when you were talking initially about the need for this cue card you said you've Mm -hmm. talked to people that have experiences that range you know, from their health care providers, from microaggressions, yeah. which I can certainly imagine what they are and understand them and can see how the cue card could help. But what what about assault? I mean, that just stunned me. I, I'm not saying it's not true, but if you could just kind oh, of yeah. unpack that a little and, and tell me a bit about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, uh, we have a lot of research that shows that this is especially common among transgender folks who mm-hmm. seek care. So mm-hmm. it also absolutely happens to um, LGBTQ folks or LGBTQ folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, just some of the examples there's um, if you want to know more about this, you can search online for something called trans broken arm syndrome. And there was a great sort of thread of tweets and articles about this a couple of years ago. And the idea is that when trans folks go into the emergency room with a broken arm, everybody assumes that everything about their medical needs has to do with them being transgender. And in fact, often, you know, transgender people are people like everybody else. They get the flu, they get strep throat, they break bones, they get in car accidents. And when they present for health care, suddenly everything is about their gender and specifically about their genitals in a way that is clinically irrelevant. Hmm. Right. If I show up to the emergency room with a broken arm, what difference does it make? What's in my pants? Right. But a lot of trans people report that they are subjected to unnecessary invasive genital exams when they present for care that has nothing to do with their gender. And often those exams are non-consensual. And so they are sort of forced to experience these really traumatic, sort of violent, often sort of, I'm making air quotes here, like procedures that are actually totally not related to the care that they actually need, but they're sort of, I don't know, pressured almost into like, if we can't do this, then we can't set the the broken bone in your arm. So that's that's just one example, but often, um, often it looks like clinically unnecessary non-consensual genital exams before you're allowed to get access to the actual care that you need. And then we also have ample evidence to show that transgender people are often just refused care in the first place. Like upon discovering that the patient is transgender, the clinician just said, we don't know how to deal with you here. You have to go somewhere else, which is, you know, I, I don't, the you know, the, you signed a, you signed a pledge that said, first, do no harm. I don't know how you turn someone away from care, but it happens all the time and disproportionately happens to transgender people. Um, you know, other examples include things like same-sex partners being denied visitation, which was, you know, depending on the state, um, sort of semi-legal until very recently. And it was under President Obama that that finally actually became illegal. But there are, we still know that there are states that, you know, that still do that, whether, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's legal or not, they find reasons to 
discriminate in those ways. Um, but I think often, you know, the part of the, the struggle here is the sort of chronic stress and anxiety of being an LGBTQ person. You know, you have to interact with the healthcare system at some point. Even the healthiest people occasionally need to interact with the system. And if you carry with you that anxiety and that stress of how's it going to go this time? Are they going to say something? Are they going to discriminate against me? And am, am I going to be subjected to some sort of screening or exam that I don't need? Are they going to respect my boundaries around my body? That kind of stress really wears people down. And that is especially true for queer and transgender people of color who are living at the intersections of homophobia, transphobia, and racism. And so the struggle of even, you know, accessing healthcare and sort of testing the like okay i have to go find a new therapist how is this person going to be is this going to be awful for me again you yes, know i don't and, think and I think so people much underestimate of, how stressful that is right and so much of being healthy as having a good relationship with a care provider there's so many studies right. that that trust is the foundation right. of the good health well um Mm-hmm. I noticed you had a very slick video where you have, uh, I think, three different youth who are promoting this mm-hmm. card. And I just love the way they're looking right at the camera <laughs> and saying things like, I'm tired of educating my doctor. Yeah. <laughs> and it must be particularly yeah. hard for people that are young, um, because yeah. whether no matter what your sexual orientation, a doctor can be an authority figure. And, you know, it's just mm-hmm. got to be hard to have to be asserting yourself. And also, a lot of kids, whether heterosexual or LGBTQ, they're figuring out their identity when they're young. And so they mm-hmm. don't really have all have it all in line, you know, to ask questions. Yeah. So, yeah, it seems like a really important, yeah. uh, really important thing you've done. I just, I, we're going through our time so fast, but I wanted to get a little bit into your background because I can see the human rights sure. shining through. I saw your online <laughs> resume. Um, you had the bachelor's degree in human rights and Russian studies and I from Bard College. And I was just particularly interested in, you said you were in St. Petersburg and you put the one in Russia. <laughs> what could you tell yeah. us a little about what you did there? I'm guessing the Russian studies interest may have come out of your family heritage when you told us about your name, yeah. or just tell us a little about yeah. what you studied and how you ended up there. Yeah, I so I went to I went to Bethlehem Central High School and was really lucky that uh, all three of my or my two brothers and I all three of us were able to take Russian starting in sixth grade. So we all studied Russian 6th through 10th grade, took the Regents exam after 10th grade. Uh, and then when I got to college, I was the only one of the three of us that picked the Russian up again. Um, and so I kept studying it. And you're absolutely right. It, it had everything to do with my, my family history and the fact that my mother, who had two degrees in French and spoke French fluently, said, take Russian. All the smart kids will take Russian. <laughs> and I want you to be in a class with all the smartest kids. Uh, and I have to say, I, I don't think she was wrong. By the time I finished my Russian classes in high school, I think there were 12 or 15 of us who made it all the way through, and a significant percentage went to Ivy League school. So she might have been right about that. Yeah, well, it's a um, very difficult language, isn't it? I mean, just when you look at it, I don't yes know, I think no. just the, all the consonants, yeah. it seems. Yeah, the, the difference is that you have to learn another alphabet. Yeah. And there's definitely a challenge in that. But, you know, reading Russian, it's very phonetic, but you know, the the more sophisticated it gets, 
absolutely it can be a tricky language. There's a lot of cases and genders, and like I've I've unfortunately lost a lot of the Russian that I had. I think the closest I ever was to fluent was when I was in St. Petersburg, and that was in 2007. And so I my senior thesis was about HIV in Russia, and about the the lack of a sort of comprehensive governmental response to the epidemic, and looking at how successful harm reduction programs had been in the U.S. and in other Western countries and how Russia was just sort of utterly failing its people in terms of coming up with a, a prevention strategy and a treatment strategy that would actually address the epidemic. And instead, they were relying on some pretty unfortunate and, dare I say, backwards uh, sort of like criminalizing and punitive approaches to the epidemic. And so I I worked on a project when I was at Bard. I was in a program called the Trustee Leaders Scholars, which was a program that mobilized students to build and implement and run service projects all over the world. And so I worked on a program that was around HIV awareness and education campaigns. And my project was focused in Russia. And so I was there partly doing language classes and language immersion. But while I was there, I was also meeting with the handful of organizations in St. Petersburg to actually do HIV awareness and education work. And it was very tricky, partly because I was there in July, which is the time of year when everyone goes on vacation. And so mm. uh, it wasn't wasn't the easiest trying to track people down. Um, but, you know, I learned a ton just by being there. And because I was in this language immersion program, I was also able to connect with, Bard has a campus in St. Petersburg. And so I was able to connect with Russian students and talk to them a little bit about their understanding and their ideas and um, sort of what they learned or didn't learn about this. So it, all of this very much led me to my career in public health. And so we didn't have, uh, you know, more and more schools now are actually offered a bachelor's degree in public health. Um, Bard had a, a global health minor while I was there, but didn't have a, a full program in public health. And so for me, combining my human rights degree and my Russian studies degree and doing that particular senior thesis gave me a way to sort of enter the world of public health and I'm in just a way wondering, that I think set me up for success. Yeah, I'm just wondering where this will lead you. You seem to be so dynamic. I mean, do you have, are you someone that sets out life goals or are you just follow your passions <laughs> and they go, they go where they do? do you, I mean, do you have a sense of what you'll be doing next or? That's a good question. So QCard is, is, a, is a passion project and a side project for me. So I I work about eight to twelve hours a week on cue cards, uh, it's, but it's not my full time job. What? I actually work at I work at the University of Washington School of Medicine right here in Seattle. So I develop curriculum and programming for medical students who want to go into care of the underserved. And so part of that is developing public health programming for medical students. Okay, I'm absorbing that. So this is. Teaching future doctors how to help poor people. Is this the idea? I mean, they're underserved. Yeah, so it's, and yeah, not, and not just poor people, but the idea is, you know, the, the physician workforce in this country does not reflect the population of the country, right? So our physicians in this country are disproportionately white. They're disproportionately from wealthier backgrounds. They are disproportionately able-bodied. And many of them go into environments where they're caring for people who are poor, caring for people who are people of color, caring for immigrants, caring for people with addictions, caring for LGBTQ people. And I think, you know, most medical schools 
don't necessarily set students up for success in that kind of work because it is much easier, I would argue, to be a physician that takes care of wealthy, highly educated people, right? They tend to have more resources at their disposal to manage their own health, mm-hmm. whereas caring for people who have fewer resources, who have lower liver, who have lower health literacy, who speak English as a second or third language, who are LGBTQ, it's a different set of skills. And so what we are trying to do is make sure that our students have the language, have the skills, have the training, have the tools, so that when they go out into the world as physicians, they know how to think critically about people's experiences, they know how to practice trauma-informed care, they know how to work with patients at different levels of understanding, and they know how to use the tools available to them in a clinical setting, whether that's referring to a social worker or connecting somebody with a nutritionist to make sure that the patient has the kind of care and support that they need and also to think through what factors outside of the clinic room might be affecting this patient's health, right? So do they live in a community that has terrible air pollution? Do they have adequate transportation? Do they have childcare? Do they have enough food to eat? Do they live in a place that is overly policed and so they're constantly in fear of something like police violence, right? What, what kinds of factors might actually inhibit their ability to manage their health? So I think a lot of physicians, when they see a poor patient with diabetes, might get frustrated if that patient's not taking the medication you prescribe. But I think a really well-equipped, health equity-focused physician is the kind of person who says, what might be in the way of this person being able to manage their diabetes, and what can we do about that to try to actually take care of them so they don't feel just shamed about the fact that they're not doing enough? So is this curricula that you develop widely taken by the medical students? Is it required, or is it something that they choose if they if they want? That's a good question. So I, I work on three different programs at the medical school, and all of them to varying degrees are opt-in. So some of this stuff is actually built into the curriculum at the University of Washington, which I think, you know, all schools could do better on this, but mm-hmm. some of our, some are a little bit further along in the process than others, and I think the University of Washington is certainly reckoning with this, is in a reckoning with this right now, especially as, you know, the, the students who are coming in are more and more driven to push the envelope on these things, which I think is great. And what I also think is great is that the university is trying to respond to those, to those students who are saying, we want more about this. We want you to talk about this stuff more. Um, so a lot of what I work on is sort of opt-in curriculum, mm-hmm. uh, but there's also very much threads of this tied into the curriculum that all of the students receive. Well, and so I work with those programs to make sure that we're not, you know, are we reinforcing something or is it totally redundant to make sure that we have a nice balance so that students, well, you know, one of the programs I work on is a training program for students who want to go into urban underserved care specifically. The University of Washington has a long history of training rural physicians. Mm -hmm. And so this was sort of a a sister program to that that focuses on students that want to go into urban underserved care. So what are the unique needs of an urban patient population that are special and, you know, how can we make sure that you're well equipped so that when you go into residency and then go into practice, you are expertly equipped to care for the unique needs of urban underserved patients? I cannot tell you, Jen, how amazed I am at all you do. Um, unfortunately, oh, well, we're almost out of time, but do you, how do you restore yourself? I mean, you're just, it seemed like you're flat out helping people in so many different directions. Um, you know, like, is there any 
concluding thought you have for our listeners on what what keeps you going at this clip? Yeah, sure. I, well, I live in Seattle, which is a beautiful place. It is a, you know, rapid, it's becoming very expensive and it's a a tricky place to live in some in some ways but it's a beautiful place to live and I have access to lakes and ocean and rivers and mountains and so that is restorative in its own way I have a tremendously supportive partner and you know sort of chosen family out here and then the other thing that I think I think that I have felt sort of called to this work because I recognize how lucky I've been and uh you know, I grew up in Del Mar and I absolutely had the gift of parents who, even if they didn't fully understand me all the time, always made it clear that I was I was loved and I was safe and I was supported. And so I think a lot of what has happened for me, you know, I'm in my 30s now and I think I realize how incredibly lucky and privileged I've been and how much has been made available and possible for me because of these invisible privileges that I've had. And so I feel compelled to make sure that I'm using that privilege for good. And I think in a lot of ways, I'm a person who has, I have access, I have access to people, I have access to resources, I have access to tables of power. And so when I was doing all of this initial cue card work, and I had finished my initial research, and I was graduating from public health school, people said, you're going to do this now, right? And I said, I was like, I don't even know what that would look like. How would I possibly make that happen? And then it became really clear to me that I was the only person who could make it happen because so many of the young people that I had worked with didn't have the access. They didn't have the power. They didn't have the resources. And I did. So I think a lot of my work comes from a place of not feeling bad for anybody or feeling like I owe people something, but feeling a rooted sense of if I am committed to the liberation of LGBTQ people and people of color and immigrants and people with disabilities, and if I truly feel like all of these oppressions are rooted in the same thing and that the solution is to look out for each other and take care of each other and speak truth to power, then I'm in a position where I can do that. And so I think, you know, my sense has always been that I have to use all of that privilege and access for good. And so I... I've tried to be a person that uses it for good. And, you know, I try to keep myself open to feedback. So when people, I, this happens to me from time to time, people contact me and say, hey, I really like your cue cards, but I wish you had added this, or I wish you had done this differently. And then the next time I print it, I try to make those changes. So I think part of it for me is recognizing that ultimately I'm accountable to the youth that I work with and who helped me design this in the first place. And if I'm not living up to their needs, and if I'm not staying accountable to them, then that's when I have to walk away and hand it over to someone else because I've stopped doing right by them. So I'm really um, I'm proud of what we've done. And I'm incredibly honored that these young people trusted me with the project. Well, I am very impressed with your whole attitude towards life. And I will sign off with the idea of looking out <laughs> for each other. I just think that's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much, yeah. Jenya. Thank you.